Bibles, we are doing a sequel to the book of Jonah. If you would, turn to the book of Nahum, chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get the Bible right to your seat. Nahum is found in the Minor Prophets, towards the back of your uh, Old Testament. Um, I want to dust off some of the pages as you turn there. Minor Prophets are great books to study, absolutely great books to study. If, you, if you've not, I encourage you to go through them. We're just going to look at a few verses in chapter 1, but the book of Nahum is really divided into, into three sections. You have chapter 1 is, is God's judgments declared, chapter 2 is God's judgment described, and chapter 3 is God's judgment deserved. And so for future reference, I encourage you to go through the whole the whole book of Nahum, see it. We're just going to look at a few verses this morning out of chapter 1. Sounds like you got there. All right. Starting in verse 1, we read, The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his ways in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks were thrown down by him. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. The title of my study this morning is, God is... Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in this place where we recognize your Holy Spirit is here teaching us through the power of your word and transforming our lives. And we pray, Father, that as we just wait on you, Lord, Lord, that we would have attentive ears to hear all that you have to say for us this morning. Thank you for just this great opportunity to worship you through song and praise. And now, Lord, we just continue to worship you through the study of your word. We thank you for this time together. We also pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you would touch their heart today, Lord, that they would see their need for you and they would turn to you this morning. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, I'm sure I've heard all the good news, bad news jokes over the years. One I've used a few times before about the guy who goes to see his doctor and the doctor says, I have some bad news and some very bad news. So the patient says, well, you might as well give me the bad news first. He says, well, the lab called with your results and you only have 24 hours to live. He said, oh, if that's the bad news, what could be worse? The doctor said, well, I was trying to get a hold of you yesterday. (laughs) Not so good. There's another one about a guy that was selling his art down in the local art gallery. And the gallery owner called up the artist and said, hey, I have some good news and some bad news. And the artist said, what's the good news? He says, well, the good news is, a man came in yesterday asking if your art would be worth more than more after you died. When I told him it would, he bought every piece of art you had in the gallery. And the artist said, well, that's great news. What's the bad news? Well, the guy was your doctor. Yeah, okay, I've had a busy week this week, okay? I'm trying to find something in here and, 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 and... got one more I'm going to try, okay? 
story of the pastor who came before his congregation and said, I have some good news and I have some bad news. He said, first of all, uh, we have all the money we need for our new building program. Everyone applauded. Then he said, but the bad news is, it's still in your pockets. <laughs> you know, we live in a bad world. Every day you open up the newspapers and it seems like there's bad news. We're reminded of it this morning, as we remember 15 years ago. The attack on 9-11 and how that one morning changed our very lives. Changed the way we live. And that's why I think every now and then we need some good news mixed with the bad news. And what before us in this book of Nahum is a bad news, good news story. The bad news, judgment is coming. The good news is, God is good. Now, I don't know if you like sequels when it comes to the movies. Sometimes they're pretty good, like Star Wars or, you know, I like the Marvel movies, okay? I like the Avengers, the Avengers 2, the Age of Ultron, Captain America series. I love them. But then you got sequels that are just plain bad. Like the old Karate Kid movies. You ever see those? How many times can a weak teenager get beat up only to come back and make an incredible comeback? I mean, I don't know. When my kids were young, they had a movie called The Land Before Time. If you have kids, maybe they saw that. You know they had 12 sequels for that? I mean, how many times can a talking dinosaur get lost and found again? Well, here before us, we have the book of Nahum records a sequel to the city of Nineveh. And it's not good news. In the first movie, in the first story, God had sent Jonah to Nineveh to announce its imminent destruction. It was a great movie. You had an evil empire. You had a stubborn prophet. You had a compassionate, long-suffering God. And you recall that, that Jonah preached to the city and that had great success, the kind of success that he didn't want to have. You remember he complained to the Lord. He was so distraught and angry, all because the city repented and God was so gracious to forgive and show them mercy. In fact, so effective uh, of Nineveh uh, that every Yom Kippur, the story of Jonah, is read in the synagogues and rabbis look at the repentance of Nineveh under Jonah's ministry as the example of what true repentance actually looks like. You know, they were clothed in sackcloth and ashes. They were bemoaning their sins and asking God to forgive them. But since then, since that time, since the greatest and most unprecedented revival in history, the city had reverted back to its old ways, its old practices. And now it's become even more wicked than before. Now, sadly, I see a parallel in America today. Now, we've had four great awakenings, spiritual revivals in America. The first was about 1740 to 1742. Men as such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, around 50,000 people were added to the churches of New England during the first great awakening. And that was significant for a population of about 300,000 at that time. But then we had the second great awakening from the 1790s to around 1840, rather. And it was led by a man named Charles Finney. It was during the the time of the wild, wild west when camp meetings were held in tents and and sawdust floors and the itinerant preacher would would travel around preaching the gospel. Thousands and thousands of, of Americans came to faith during that time. Then we had the third great awakening from 1857 to 1859 and had a unique beginning. A 48-year-old businessman from, named uh, uh, Jeremiah Lanfear began a prayer meeting in New York City. Though small, it exploded after the stock market crash. Within six months, 10,000 New Yorkers were gathering together for prayer. 
Around one million people came to believe in Jesus during the third great awakening. And then uh, it brings us to the fourth great awakening. And maybe many of you were alive during this time. You know, I was. It's the last American history that I actually witnessed and, and came to the Lord through. Now I'm talking, of course, about the Jesus movement of the 70s. And I came to Christ in 1979 and found myself at the tail end of a full-blown spiritual awakening. But I look at where we're at today. And unless there's another great awakening, I fear our country is heading quickly for the place where Nineveh found itself 150 years after God showed His grace and His mercy. Now this brings us to the three things we're going to look at this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, we're going to see God is jealous. Number two, we're going to see God is slow to anger. And number three, we're going to see God is good. We start off in verse 1 of Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Now, Nahum was an Elkoshite, which if we knew where Elkish was, that might mean something to us. But regardless of where he was born, he was a prophet from God, and the Lord had a message for him to give, a burden against Nineveh to proclaim the complete and total annihilation of Nineveh. It's the judgment of God that was going to come against this wicked, wicked nation. See, unlike Jonah's message that we looked at previously, this, this, this time, 150 years later, the people would not listen to the prophet and Nineveh would be destroyed. It's a warning to us. If you're saved and you want your children and their children after them to be saved, it's not an automatic thing. God has no grandchildren. Our kids are free moral agents. They must choose for themselves to receive or reject Jesus Christ. But with that said, you can certainly and, and, and should do all that you can to have a powerful influence in helping them make their own decision to receive Christ. As you teach your children the Word and share with them the character of God and, and how God has touched your life. There was a great preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, who tells about how it was customary for his family to have devotions on Sunday evenings. And he said that his mom would sit around the table and open up the Scriptures and read them to, to them, explain them to them. And, and also she would plead with them and ask specific questions about each of their souls, and then she would pray. But it wasn't just a prayer, you know, uh, with vague generalities, Lord, bless my children. It was a prayer that went something like this. Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. Can you imagine being a kid around the table going, oh, oh. Mom, could you pray for just a good night's sleep? I mean, come on. But see, we must do all that we can as parents to see our kids come into that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, this brings us to our first point. Number one, God is jealous. Look at, look at verse two. We read, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, what is interesting is there, there's a parallel and, and principles that we see between the words of Nahum here and what God has declared in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 of the Ten Commandments and the Second Commandment. Now, mark this verse down. You can look it up later. It's Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. And the Lord says this, starting in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So here we have the bad news and the good news. Speaking here that God is jealous and that if there's idolatry, God will judge, but those that trust Him, He shows mercy. In fact, in verse 5 says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Again, speaking about one generation after another generation continually turning their backs on God, continually having a bad influence. Again, how important it is that our lifestyles, our priorities, our passion, and our purposes all reflect Jesus Christ. Now, if you're living for Jesus, you, you want to be a person of prayer and spend time in His Word and in fellowship. These qualities, you know, our children will see in future generations. Well, it'll impact your kids. But I find it interesting that we read in Exodus, the Lord says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And verse 2 names says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. Now, understand, God is not jealous of other gods. Oh, I don't like that God over there. No, it's not that. You know, God is not, uh, he, rather, he's, he's jealous for us. God does not want your affection to be going to any other idol or any other God or any other ideal. See, every man has a God. Even the man who claims to be an atheist who doesn't believe in God has a God because the person's God is whatever their master passion is. Whatever it is that governs their life. That is why the first of the Ten Commandments, the first one of God's top ten list, it tells us what we, that we should be careful of as believers it's Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, here's an interesting fact. This was shared with me after I did the, the study of Jonah. Uh, the Assyrians in Nineveh, to whom Jonah was sent as a missionary, they worshipped Dagon, a fish god, and its female counterpart, the fish goddess Nanshi. Now, Jonah, of course, didn't go straight to Nineveh, but he had to be brought there via miraculous means. The transportation that God provided for Jonah, we remember a great fish. Man, that would have had full meaning to the Ninevites. When Jonah arrived at the city, he made quite a splash, so to speak. I mean, here was a man who had been inside of a fish for three days, directly deposited on the shores of Assyria. Now, the Ninevites who worship a fish god, I mean, they had to be duly impressed. They gave, gave Jonah their, their attention, repented of their sins. But now they're back to their old ways again. Back to the idol worship. Back to things that, that they're taking the place of God in their lives. Instead of a revival, they're, they're, they're turning towards the things of the world. Again, I see a parallel in America today. And I used to think that the greatest threat, the biggest idol that we have as Americans that we face today is, is, is you know, sitting there in front of the, the you know, the television set, the, the, the TV set, you know, the, the big screen. I remember being a kid growing up in Southern California, we'd spend our summers on the beach and, and uh, would rent a, a house on the beach and, and they had this boardwalk and, and these homes were just multi-million dollar homes and, and I'd be walking five, six o'clock at night and I'm thinking, man, how come you guys aren't looking out at the ocean, how awesome it is, they're all just sitting there watching TV. I mean, that's what's important to them, which is watching TV. Then I remember what a few years back going down to Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina and helping out just the poorest of the poor down there who lost everything. And they're taking what little money that they received, and what are they doing? They're going out and buying TV sets. Go, oh, man, that's an idol. 
I think, okay, well, what today, I mean, what, what is it? It's just about every person has these days that they bow down before. A cell phone. Man, we're always on our phones constantly. I have to watch myself. Okay, okay, yeah, just yo, 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 what about this, you know? Listen, an idol is any object, idea, 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 I can't even say it. Object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, whatever one's primary concern and loyalty or to that any degree decrease, decreases one's trust and loyalty to God. Let me put it the way Alan Redpath puts it. He puts it better. Our God is the person we think is the most precious, for whom we would make the greatest sacrifice, who moves our hearts with the warmest love. He or it is the person who, if we lost him, would leave us desolate. That opens up a whole realm of possibility, doesn't it? An idol could be your wife, could be your husband, could be your boyfriend, girlfriend, could be your family. The person we think is most precious, for whom we would make the greatest sacrifice. A lot of things can come into our lives as idols. And it's true, but a terrifying fact that a person can attend church every single Sunday and be a full-tilt idolater. Why? Because they put something else or something higher than God in their lives. What master passion is governing your life uh, is, is your God. There are those who say, well, I don't have any other gods before me. I don't worship idols. Colossians 3.5 says covetousness is idolatry. Oh, did you have to say that, Pastor? Okay, I thought I was doing fine. Anything that you give yourself to, especially in abandonment, becomes your God. Many people, you know, they don't worship Bacchus, the cloven-footed Greek and Roman god of wine and revelry of long ago, but they worship the bottle just the same. Millions of alcoholics in our country right now that, in a sense, worship the god of Bacchus. Other people worship the god uh, Aphrodite, the, 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 the goddess of sex. And there are those that bow down before a computer screen worshiping. Some people worship money. Anything that you give your time, heart, and soul to becomes your God. God says we're not to have any other gods before Him. God doesn't want any other master passion governing your life but Him. He wants to be the master passion of your life. He's jealous for you. Alan Redpath, another quote, has said this, God's jealousy is love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because He is selfish and wants to all for himself, but because he knows that upon that, that loyalty to him depends our very moral life. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. See, if we allow something else in our life to be a substitute for him, he's displeased. And his displeasure is described as jealousy. In other words, God is jealous for you because he loves you so much. He wants nothing than what's absolute best for your life. And he knows if you have any love or, or, or God or passion above him, it's not going to work out. You're going to miss out. Now getting back to verse 2, we read again that God is jealous. He goes on, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now again, I like the Marvel movies, the Avengers, and the sequel, the Avengers, Age of Ultron. But let me tell you this, the Lord is the ultimate Avenger. Do you ever think about that? I mean, really think about God avenging. God taking vengeance on someone. The God of the universe. The all-powerful, mighty God who created this amazing world that we live in. The, the powerful oceans, the seas, the entire galaxy, the entire universe that He holds in the palm of His hands. 
the same God that we can't even begin to imagine the power that He has. He says, I avenge and I am furious. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I reserve my wrath for my enemies. Whoa. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But you see, again, it's bad news, good news again. Because when I read about the awesomeness of God's judgment, man, it makes me all the more appreciate what Jesus Christ absorbed for me upon the cross of Calvary. When God poured out all of the wrath that was due me upon His Son, it should have been on me, it should have been on you. He died in our place. What a price. And you read about the severity of God's judgment and wrath, you cannot help but grow in great in your amazement that Jesus Christ took that wrath for you, took it for me. That's why when those who reject Jesus Christ, they're rejecting the only way for them to be saved from God's wrath to come. Now, this brings us to point number two. God is slow to anger. Look at verse three. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way, way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now think about that for a moment. What do you think slow is in God's term? I mean, we read in the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, Surely I come quickly. He said that about 2,000 years ago, okay? If quickly is at least 2,000 years, then how long is slowly to God? I don't know, but it's got to be longer than 2,000 years. And if God angers that slowly, that must mean He loves us so much more. Psalm 103, verse 8, we're told the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. Slow. God, I mean, He just wants to pour His mercy out upon us. He doesn't want judgment to come upon us. That's why He's slow to anger. But to see, 150 years earlier, the Ninevites heard the warning from Jonah. Forty days in judgment would come. And the king, remember, all the way down to the common people, they repented. They cried out to God, mercy, God, mercy, and God granted them mercy. But now, 150 years later, perhaps this king now, and Nineveh, remembered the stories of old. How God relented from destroying Nineveh. And now he's thinking, yeah, right, judgment. We heard all this before. God's not going to judge. Because he hasn't. Listen, don't mistake the long-suffering of God and God being slow to anger for Him not being just. God must bring judgment, and He will. And there are those, I know, that object to, the, to thinking that God, God, in the terms of judgment or vengeance or wrath or anger, they don't like to think that way. They don't like to say, well, God is just, just a God of love. And I'm sure you've heard people say, well, I can't accept that a loving God would send anyone to hell or allow someone to go there. How could a God of love? And, and they have their questions. It's true that God is a God of love, and yet it's because of God's love for us, and because of His holiness, He must judge. See, we all in us have, have a, sent a, a loving nature. And because of my loving nature, I can get very stirred up when those I love are threatened. When those I love have someone come against them. If my children are attacked, if my wife is threatened, though I am by nature a loving person, I can change in an instant. If there's a threatening situation, that would be threatening to those I love so much. Now, it's not because I'm not a loving person. It's because I do love that I'm upset that anyone would harm or threaten those that I love. Let me tell you, it's the same way in this church. I love you guys so much. And and, and if some wolf in sheep's clothing tries to come in and rip us off, 
tries to, to come against his flock, they better watch out. Because my David shepherding skills are going to come to play, and I'm just going to, bing, bing. Okay, let's go, guys. Let's get these guys. But to see, that's the way God is. He protects his own. He loves his own. God is not, God is love, but love is not weak. God certainly is not weak because God is holy and just. He must bring judgment against sin. And just because God is slow to anger and great in power, it doesn't mean he won't judge. I mean, verse 3 even says so that God is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. In other words, God's not like some unjust judge that goes, oh, okay, yeah, I know you, you, you messed up and, and yeah, I know you, you killed these people, and but that's all right. You know, come on, you know, come on, let bygones be bygones. God's not going to do that. No, sin must be accounted for because he will not acquit the wicked. Every sin will be paid for, either in hell or at the cross, but God will not acquit the wicked. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Never once has he pardoned an unpunished sin, not in all the years of the Most High, not in all the days of his right hand, as he once blotted out sin without punishment. Let me say, folks, I look around in our world today, and I see things happening, and I'm sure you do too, that, that signs that were, were marking that the Jesus would say would be the beginning of the last days. I read in Scripture where the Bible says that men will be lovers of, of self instead of, uh, of lovers of God, where Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars, earthquake in various places, that there would be perilous times. I see the horrendous acts of ISIS and the killing of innocent children and the raping of women. I see the wars in Syria and the shrouding of our nations against Israel. Today we remember the horrific act of 9-11 and we look around and we see violent men. We see perilous times. We're living in satanically energized times. Now people ask, well, what's wrong with our society? It's not our society, folks. The problem is people are not right with God. And as a nation, we're not right with God. The world is not well, folks. It's suffering. It's suffering from carnality, from perversion, from the sickness of sin. And therefore, our Father has no choice but to bring Judgment to say enough is enough. And, and, and the fact that it hasn't come yet is all the more the sign of God's great love and long-suffering with us. But don't mistake God's grace for his acceptance of sin. In fact, verse 3 goes on to say of the power of God to judge, the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. <laughs> My mother-in-law loves that verse. Whenever she comes out, you know, we have the bright blue skies here, some beautiful white puffy clouds, there's some great days, and she'll say, that's the dust of God's feet, you know, that, that's it right there, you know, and it's great, you know, you guys are going to remember that from now on, but, but here's the thing, Nahum is just describing how powerful God is, these massive clouds as they move through the sky, it's like just God kicking up the dust, I mean, it's nothing, it's like dust to God, in fact, he goes on, and this is a radical, look at verses 4 through 6. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the flower of Lebanon wilts, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. And just see the power of God over the seas and he dries up the rivers and causes earthquakes and rocks to be thrown down. Listen, for those of you students of God's word, does that sound familiar to you? 
The Lord has warned, in the last days, judgment will come. The time of God's wrath, the seven-year great tribulation period the Bible talks about, is known as the time of Jacob's trouble, where God pours His wrath out upon a sinful, God-rejecting world. And it's interesting to me that the idea of God judging is constantly being questioned. But the fact of the matter is, whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen. The fact is, God will judge. It's not a matter of if, it's, it's when. It's been said that the wills of God's justice turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. So, did Nineveh get judged? Well, just look at, drop down to verses 8 through 10 for a moment. I want to show you this. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time, for while tangled like thorns, and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. Very interesting prophecy. History tells us that Nineveh, the great city, the capital of Assyria, was destroyed by a confederacy of the Medes and the Babylonians. And they got together and they came against the Ninevites. And as they came against them, the army of Nineveh came out against the Medes and the Babylonians. On three different occasions, the Ninevites just really uh, wiped them out, defeated them thoroughly. And so the, the, the Medes and the Babylonians, they would go, they regrouped together and then come back again. Well, after the third time, the army of Nineveh defeated the invading confederacy of the Medes and the Babylonians. The soldiers began to celebrate. Men had this great victory with this invading army. They won on this big drunken binge, just celebrating the victory. And while they were drunk, the forces of the Medes and the Babylonians regrouped, attacked them, and caught them in that drunken state and wiped them out. Look at verse 10 again. For while tangled like thorns, and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. Exactly as God's word prophesied. God says it will happen this way, and then it will happen exactly the way he says it will. And this portion of Nahum's prophecy was literally fulfilled as the forces of Nineveh were destroyed outside the city of Nineveh. One more prophecy. Drop down to verse 14 for a moment. The Lord has given a command concerning you, your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. To this day, I have not met a Ninevite. Neither of you. There's no Assyrians. All that to say, when God says he will judge, he will just as he says. That's the bad news. Praise the Lord for good news. This brings us to our final point. Number one, God is jealous. Number two, God is slow to anger. Number three, God is good. Thank God for verse 7. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. Amen. Nahum declares God's power and judgment, a reminder given, man, the Lord is good. I like that. Because when you're talking about the awesomeness of God's judgment, always keep in mind that God is good. Yes, judgment must come because God is good. Let me say again, it goes back to the, the story with my kids. If I'm outside with my kids and I see this rabid dog coming towards my kids and it's just foaming in its mouth and it's growling and I take my gun out and I shoot that dog, I stop it in its track so it doesn't hurt my children, are the animal rights people justified in saying, you're a horrible person, you murdered that animal? I don't think so. Neither would I care what they thought. I mean, the rabid dog was heading for my, my children, my gift from God, and it wants to hurt them or harm them. So I'm going to protect my children. Why? Because I love them. 
And besides, that dog is already dead. It's dead in, it, in, it, in its disease, and, and, and it's got rabies, and all it's going to do is spread its madness around. I'm not going to let him do that to my children. That's what God is saying here. Because God is good, He protects those that are His own, those that love Him. That's always been the case. Go back to when, when the world, to the time of Noah, and the, the world was corrupt, it was horrible, and, and God spared Noah and his family, protected them through the flood. Go back to the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. God pulled him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look to the future, the great tribulation, when God will pour his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. He's going to protect his own. He's going to pull us out. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I believe prior to the tribulation, God will pull His church, you and I as believers, to safety in what is known as the rapture of the church. Let me read about that. Let me quote 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. Just to get you excited. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead of Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Listen, if you were going to face judgment, God's judgment, you wouldn't be very comforted, comforted by, by those words, would you? But, but we have comfort because God's going to pull us out. Second Peter 2.9 Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That's why the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Oh, this generation today needs to hear that. Yes, judgment is coming, but God is good and He doesn't want you to have to be judged. See, I look again at the situation that God is speaking to name about this terrible judgment that's about to take place. To see the awesome judgment of God should strike terror. But then in the middle of it, He says, God is good. The Lord is good. Listen, we can't see into the future, you know, or the future looks bleak, terrifying. That's okay because I know the one who holds my future. It's in his hands and he is good. I love the song, the, the new song, Good, Good Father. I think we all do. I mean, and it begins with, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. And have we not? Oh, God, just this angry God and God, a, a judgment all the time. But it goes on. But I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. And you tell me that you're pleased and I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. I love that. God is good and he loves us as his children. And not only that, we read next in verse 7, he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. You know, a stronghold was a fortress back there where you could run to because the fortress was, was built to withstand attack. God is our stronghold in the day of trouble. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Listen, you look at the world today, the only safe place we have, and as always, will be with the Lord. I mean, when we face trials, and, 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 and where, where else can you turn? You know, our, our culture, we like to rely on mottos. You know, people live by mottos. You know, what you can't carry, you must endure. You know, or just grin and bear it. Or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, I don't know about that. Listen, in real trouble, models, they aren't very helpful, especially when they're not true. So what do you do in times of trouble? You know, phone a friend? <laughs> Family member? Have you ever turned to a friend when you were having, you needed help only to find that they're worse off than you are? <laughs> Listen, the first place we need to turn to is the Lord. He is good. He's a stronghold in the time of trouble. He's a strong tower. He says, and the righteous run to it and are safe. 
Again, folks, the bad news, judgment is coming. The good news is we have a strong tower, our good God who can, we can run to, run to and find safely. And finally, this is the best part, verse 7, and he knows those who trust in him. Do you trust in him this morning? God knows whether you do or whether you don't. You know, people around you, they may not know, they may think you do, but you know deep down in your heart. Paul would write in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Yet God knows who, who, who are His. That's His part. Our part, we need to depart from iniquity. But that's our responsibility. But think about this. God is good. He's faithful. He's wise. Why wouldn't you trust in Him? Now, Satan fights against that in our life. Does he not? I mean, he knows that we're trusting in the Lord and he wants to bring fear in our lives and, and fear of this and fear of that. And, 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 but see, because he knows that when you trust in the Lord, that brings peace, that brings that, that safety in, in, in time of need. So he'll want to do whatever he can to get your eyes off the Lord and onto your circumstances. Don't let it happen. Keep your trust in the Lord. David said, I will not trust in my bow, neither in my sword to save me. Isaiah said, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Listen, the world around us is not getting any better. The Bible describes it as this present evil world in Galatians 1.4. We're warned to not be corrupted by the world around us in 2 Peter 1.4. Folks, we're standing in a similar situation to that of Nahum. God's judgment is coming because of sin and the wickedness of our world. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 4.24 that our God is a consuming fire. We know things are terribly wrong in our world. And being a consuming fire, God says, I'll not, not allow sin to go on indefinitely. I am patient now. I'm not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. For there's coming a day where God says, enough is enough. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth will be burned up, Second Peter 3.10. But now, right now, the Lord says, I'm patient. I'm giving people the opportunity to turn to me. But the day is coming where I will judge, and I will judge radically. Now, Nahum spoke to a city that was once revived, a city that had once turned to God with, with fasting and sackcloth and prayer and sincerity. But the years passed. They stood back under their old ways, carnal ways, and now the Lord says, I am against you. Now, see, I do believe there are going to be people standing before the Lord that will honestly, honestly be shocked when the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. How much more of this time of grace do we have? We don't know. We don't know for certain, but we know it's coming to an end. All we need to do, uh, and, and all we can do now, is to warn those around us. Warn them of the bad news, but tell them of the good news, that there's hope. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. See, as we close, it all comes down to a choice. Good news or bad news? Do you want to experience the, the wrath of God and judgment? Or will you embrace the finished work of Christ upon the cross? The choice is yours. Bad news, face God's judgment. Good news, come to Christ. Not rocket science, folks. <laughs> the verse 7 says, The Lord knows those who trust Him. As we close, does the Lord know that you trust Him? Does the Lord know that you put your faith and trust in Him? If not, then the good news is there's still time. There's still time today, this morning, to get a fresh start, to come to Christ today. The Bible says today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Remember this. No one wants you to be saved more than Jesus Christ does. He loves you so much. And if you don't know Christ today, I want to give you that opportunity to have your sin forgiven, to know that you will not have to face the certain judgment that will come upon this earth, because you have the hope of heaven. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, it's often difficult to, to look at your word and see the judgment that's going to come because it is radical and you are a powerful, mighty, mighty God. And we deserve your judgment. We deserve to face your wrath because we've sinned against a holy God. But Lord, we also remember your son that you gave for us to die upon that cross to take every sin we've ever committed, every wrong we've ever done, to take the guilt upon himself, to experience your wrath so we would not have to. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you that we are your own, that you love us as your children, that you protect us from your wrath. And Father, I pray right now, if there is anyone here that has not placed their faith and trust in you, Lord, your word says you know those that trust you. So Lord, if there's anyone here that they've not surrendered their heart and life to you, Lord, help them to know, Lord, first of all, that judgment is coming. They need to turn from their sin. But more importantly, help them to know that you are good and you love them and you want what's absolutely best for their lives. So, Father, I pray that they would make the commitment to follow you this morning, to surrender their hearts hearts and life to you today. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again? You want your sin forgiven? Would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Just a first-time commitment to Christ. You want your sin forgiven. You want to be born again. Just raise it up so I can see you this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your grace. But most of all, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son, for the work that was done upon the cross for our sins. We give you all the praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.